Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to This Being Human. I'm your host, Abdurrahman Malik. On this podcast, I talk to extraordinary people from all over the world whose life, ideas, and art are shaped by Muslim culture. I think the best art of whatever discipline or medium it turns you sideways and you never see the world the same way again. There's a term you'll hear in this interview, auto-physio-psychic. It sounds fancy, but it's a simple concept and one that can describe so much of the art that we talk about on this show. According to the man who coined it, this word means music from one's physical, spiritual, and mental self, i.e. music from the heart. The man who came up with that word is the late Dr. Yusuf Abdulatif who was mostly known to the public as a genre-bending musician. You might call his output jazz, or blues, or R&B, or even world music. But listening to it feels like a spiritual experience. I've been interested in Dr. Yusuf Latif's work for a long time. Some of you will know his famous love theme from Stanley Kubrick's 1960 film, Spartacus. Others will revel in his multi-instrumental musical genius. Listening to Yusuf Latif has always transported me to places both familiar and cosmic. So I was intrigued when I saw that the artist Shazad Daoud was putting on an exhibition in conversation with the works of Dr. Yusuf Abdul Latif. Shazad Daoud's installation on display at the Aga Khan Museum is called Night in the Garden of Love, named after a novella by Latif. It's a multi-sensory exhibition that immerses visitors into a fantastical garden through the use of virtual reality. Like Yusuf Latif, Shazad is not easily boxed in. His work spans painting, video, textiles, architecture, and emerging technologies. Shazad joined me from London shortly before his exhibition opened. Shazad, I want to begin, if I may, with the legend and the scholar that is Dr. Yusuf Abdul Latif. You know, your latest installation at the Al-Khan Museum is called Night in the Garden of Love, which is a work that's inspired and in conversation with the jazz legend, Dr. Yusuf Abdul Latif. But Yusuf Latif is more than just a musician, isn't he? He was an artist, a science fiction writer, a composer, a scholar of education, and I would dare say even a spiritual guide to many. And I have to be honest, Shazad, he kind of reminds me of you. 
<laughs> oh, I feel I feel very flattered <laughs> with the comparison. I must I must because, say because I it's the, I believe in like in so many ways your work defies like simple definitions and you work across disciplines and there's something very powerful about your approach because it's not only about the meeting of art and technology and ideas, but there's this very conscious focus on the interior life and in the interior world. Um, I'd like to think that in more ways than one, you and Dr. Yusuf Latif are kindred spirits. Are you kindred spirits? Well, there's a few points to come back on there, Abdul Rahman. The first one, because if I don't call you out on it, I'm going to be in big trouble with a number of people, is that Dr. Latif hated the term jazz. <sighs> And it's an interesting one because obviously you go into any record shop and that's where you find his music till today. But he found it past a certain point in his early development, very straitjacketing and reductive. You know, he felt that he was doing his thing and it was the interior life writ large. And it was maybe to make a comparison with how the uh, Sufi scholar Henry Corbin writes about it. It's like a theophanic outpouring, if you get my meaning. Absolutely. And I'm going to jump back to my childhood now because I, I was brought up in a very syncretic way, you know, with everything from Sufi stories to Hindu stories, Buddhist ideas. It was a very, a very syncretic moment. But interestingly, and in a more playful way, my maternal uncle is actually called Yusuf Latif. Growing up, we knew, you know, we knew Yusuf Latif's music, but there was also a, a sort of a running joke in our family, like, no, not that Yusuf Latif, the other one. So there was this weird sense, you know how things sometimes when you look back are harbingers of things to come. And there was a sense that brother Yusuf Latif, the polymath, was part of our extended family. And yet, you know, I knew the music very well. I knew about some of the concepts he employed, even as a young man, his methodology that he termed autophysiopsychic. So even that degree of the amount of thought and, I guess, spiritual intention that undergirds the work, I knew about as a young man, but I didn't know about the drawing practice. I didn't know about the writing till much later. I never had the privilege to meet Brother Latif in his lifetime, but I do feel we're kindred spirits. I've taken a very long time to answer your question, <laughs> but I like to think that I've spent so much time with his legacy, his archive, his collaborators, his former students, his widow and others that I would like, you know, and I suppose the attraction to the material was this polymathic spirit, having that restless spiritual inquiry into transformation. You know, maybe, I don't know if Brother Latif would agree with this, but I see it as a kind of spiritual alchemy. How do we, how do we refine our inner journey so that it can be shared with others in a way that transforms our collective journey? Tell me more about this project. Take us into it. I understand that it's an immersive experience, that the visitor will be fully involved and in a fully sensory way in something that you and your collaborators have created. Give us a taste of it. Well, I love collaboration. And this one, I suppose it had eight years to kind of really go nuts in terms of the number of collaborations that it features. I mean, there's a cast list and an ideal cast list. I mean, I got 
everyone I could possibly want to work with on this project in this project. And just to echo what you said about your encounter with the novella Night in the Garden of Love, I mean, it turned me sideways. It's probably the most respectful thing I can say about my encounter with that work. And I mean that profoundly. It's not a throwaway comment. You know, I think the best art of whatever discipline or medium, it turns you sideways and you never see the world the same way again. And just for those who haven't encountered it, I, I highly recommend reading it. Dr. Latif wrote it in, it was published in 1988, and it's an eco-sci-fi parable. And just to kind of precy it, there's a figure called the mutant. You're never quite sure a mutant of what. But I, I did my own kind of riffing on that and thought about it as being maybe an interstitial, you know, human-plant hybrid. And the book basically... I mean, I'm going to not do it justice, but there's a number of characters, but one of the main threads through it is this elderly couple who are led by the mutant from a sort of dystopian Detroit into the Garden of Love, which for me is everything I'd always encountered as a child in terms of the idea of the Sufi garden, how it reaches its highest expression in Al-Andalus, in different moments through history that are, whether it's sort of Baghdad in the 11th, 12th century, these moments of where Islamic culture is multicultural, tolerant, diverse. It's kind of pushing the boundaries of arts and sciences, which other cultures do at moments, but it's always these syncretic moments where poof, you have this uplifting of the human soul and spirit, and it's alchemy that changes our landscape and pulls us out of the gutter and allows us to collaborate and work together and humanist expansion takes place. You can tell I'm a bit of a, a wild optimist, despite <laughs> the state of the world. God knows we need optimism today. I, I appreciate this optimism. I think we have to cling to it and look at ways to kind of, for it to have meaning, you know, to hold meaning and to hold hope and transformation. In the darkest moments, that's what we have to fall back on. It's the power of the human heart and spirit to come together and to transform through love. And I don't mean that in a sort of throwaway love with cute bunny rabbits, I mean something much more profound, a kind of spiritual love that allows a change in consciousness to take place. You are bringing Dr. Latif's vision alive, and in a way forcing us to confront its not only audacity, but its possibility? I would say, I think there's less of a desire to sort of impose. I kind of see it in a more freewheeling way that I'm inviting the audience to come for a walk, you know, to come for a walk in the garden. And what is the garden? I'm making a garden without, and I'll come on to where a trace of a real plant comes in later, but it's like the best metaphysical kind of imagination. There's not a single plant in there, but there's plants depicted. And what is this idea of the sign, the image, and the mind? I want to take people, hold their hand, and go for a walk and share possibility in the way that you might break bread or have tea together. I want, I want to leap into it right now, Shazad. <laughs> I, want to, I, want to go there. I want to go there with you. I feel like I'm not telling anybody anything about what they're actually going to encounter, though. So maybe I should get to the point. And, you know, I guess the first part of the process to realize this project was spending time to understand what was going on 
without claiming that I fully know what's going on in Dr. Latif's drawings. They are a marvel. It was only later in the process I understood that he would jump between composition and drawing. And they were parallel processes or perhaps not even as parallel as all that. That was how his day flowed. And, you know, I spent a lot of time with his drawings of plants and and of graphic scores and started painting large textile works in response. So that's where the dialogue began. And then I was starting to learn more about the particular plants he was fascinated by and could check them with the particular plant species I'm fascinated by. And then it started to become a real dialogue. And then I was like, oh, now I feel kind of comfortable and confident to think about how to bring some of the images in the book to life. So I started storyboarding a VR experience, which will be part of the exhibition. I just wanted it to be a journey that would work within that medium and was also my bringing of certain scenes to life, which could be distinct from how you saw them in your mind's eye or any other reader where they kind of took them. But there's this beautiful experience where you start in black holes, which is where Dr. Latif started the novella. And then you fall to earth in a dystopian Detroit and pass through a recycling complex and an encounter with a fly (laughs) that somehow opens a portal to the Garden of Love. And that's where it all dematerializes. And I was able to work with uh, Wen Lun Yu, who's an amazing Brussels-based choreographer and dancer, to be my mutant. And we spent a week working on the choreography of the mutant because the mutant dances through the novella, but there's no instructions about what that dance looks like. For me, that's also, it's a mixture between a sort of humility with regard to this source material, but also an audacity, i.e. going, this is audacious material. I have to be audacious in imagining it, even while keeping the humility of my respect for Dr. Latif and, and checking in with various people to see if they think I'm, I'm on the right road, whatever that may be. Was there a moment in this process as you're contending with embracing, wrestling with a Yusuf Latif's work that you started to have like conversations with him, even though he wasn't there? I've sort of resisted going there in kind of interviews and how I've talked about it, but there's definitely felt like moments where Brother Yusuf was in the room. And I felt like the latecomer to the party, you know, in terms of collaborating with so many people who'd known him so well for decades, literally, when they were validating what I was doing, my approach, and so many of them said, you know, have, have thanked me, which for me was humbling. But, you know, why it took so long? It wasn't just the book, because if the book is this idea of the transformational potential of the garden as a space, as a meditative, speculative, transformative pathway, let's call it, to not over-egg it. But also Latif's drawings. There were all these drawings. I mean, there's ones which are interval drawings, which are much more related as a sort of almost graphic score. They're still departing from a standard Western classical score, a stave with its set parameters. I mean, he was going from interval drawings to cosmograms with scalar interchanges as a suggested pathway. (laughs) 
through live performance. But he also did these amazing plant drawings. I've spent a lot more time going through the archive in the estate. And then, you know, you're like, what are these drawings and how do they work with the novel? And what is going on here? So if the novel is, is written in a musical meter, the drawings, even of plants, are also graphic scores. This was an amazing revelation to me. Basically, one of Latif's long-term musical collaborators told me about one of the few times his drawings were shown in his lifetime. And he walked into the gallery, pulled out a wooden bamboo flute, and started performing a drawing of a tree. The, the image itself is remarkable. And the vision of an artist to see drawings, visual art, and to process them in to sound is for me the alchemy. To me, it's so ahead of its time. I mean, it's having spent all these years with it, I would even go so far as to say this could radically overhaul our whole educational system. I mean, I've always been a champion of interdisciplinarity and thinking liminally and how I mean, I definitely, you know, for many years after, after finishing my studies, people go, oh, but you paint and you make films and you do, can't you just pick one? And I remember like earlier in my career, it was a difficult moment because it was a, a quite a well-reputed gallery and they wanted to work with me, but they were like, could you just focus on the painting? And it was almost like my inner voice or my higher mind took over because the young kind of kid trying to make a buck and keep doing what he did was wanting to take, oh, I'll do whatever you want. I'll sweep the floors, you know, just give me a show. But somehow this voice, a much more mature voice than my own came out of me and just said, but that would be like asking me to go through life with one arm tied behind my back. I probably didn't do myself any favors career-wise in a superficial sense, but I did myself, I did the only thing I could do for myself. And for me, it's, I'm very uh, touched that the idea of being multidisciplinary or has become much more accepted. Some of the media I work with, like textiles, it's not just relegated to the sort of craft category. There's an understanding of so many ways to kind of express yourself. But for me, it's interweaving. When people say, oh, how can you work with something so traditional like textiles and then work in the digital? And I'm like, but a weaving loom is a computer. You know, it's a binary encoding machine. Actually, no, it's you who are missing the bigger picture here. These are stages and staggered moments of technological transformation that allow us new pathways to actually externalize the inner mind into the outer world. Was there a moment in your childhood, Shazad, that that either you know sparked the creative impulse or where you started having a sense of yourself as a, we're all creators, but as a creator in the way that you have become a creator? Well, I was quite a strange kid. <laughs> that probably doesn't come <laughs> as a surprise. But, you know, I, I knew it at seven years old in the same way that people want to be a, an astronaut or or something kind of wonderful like that. Family members often thought I was this very strange, stubborn kid who would amount to nothing, you know, because <laughs> it was, you know, at that stage, it was like, uh, as a child of an immigrant family, it was, you had to try and assimilate, uh, 
have an aspirational career that would help the community. And yet, I guess, in some accident of fate, I mentor a lot of younger artists. And I think there are many ways to open doors and paths for others. And I think perhaps it's a nice thing that with uh, generations, as you mentioned, this it can shift. Mm. With that seven-year-old Shazad, when he realizes, I'm an artist, I'm a creator. How do you get to that point, Shazad, where you see yourself as creator first and the materials are almost secondary, it feels, right? Like, I'm a visual artist. I mean, like you said, and you had this audacity at a very young age even to challenge the establishment and kind of say, no, I'm not going to be boxed in. This is who I am. This is how I operate. This is how my creative flow works. And there's that kind of process, isn't it, to get you to that point? I'm fascinated by that. I guess trying to think back, it's trying to overcome your own insecurity. You know, that moment when your larger self or your higher mind speaks for you. And I think we're always negotiating between our meek voice and our higher mind. And that's the right thing, because somewhere in between those two poles, we find our natural balance. So it's not that one is always wrong and one is always right. I think we really need to kind of move out of these binary categories that limit ourselves from kind of stretching our empathy, our possibility. So for me, it was, it's coming into being. And knowing that from a very young age that I will be this, I may not be it yet, but I will be this. And that's the higher mind sort of drip feeding you a sense of trajectory, a sense of possibility. And then I suppose, you know, not wanting to work with one medium. I think there's some things that you just, you can do or you can't do. And for me, it struck me as irrational. And that's not to do down some very dear friends who focus on their medium and, and produce things that I couldn't produce. And I'm in awe of what they do and that level of focus. But equally, I wouldn't say it's because I'm unfocused. But my focus works more in constellation. Part of my time spent with something is to kind of absorb it, that osmosis to take place where I can slowly start to find what is the right and natural expression for what I've learned. And, you know, in this case, the dialogue with Brother Yusuf wasn't singular. There was something very of a piece with my creative outpouring that I found that what he was doing between the book, between the drawings, between the music, oh, it was so wonderfully rich and fulfilling for me to kind of learn and understand it better because it's in those spaces that I like to play and operate because I never believe in the form of things. So for me, it's like, oh, the paintings, the paintings kind of help the audience, hopefully help them understand what's going on in, in Brother Youssef's drawings because I've put in the time to try and understand those drawings and how they function, because they function in multiple directions. Just the fact that he can play one, but they're also an aesthetic, illustrative representation of something, but they're not. And that's when something becomes interesting, because it's not just what it appears to be. I mean, it's a, it's a challenging idea for an artist to tell us. The form is okay, but it's not about the form. As you were saying that, I'm immediately feeling the paradox of that statement, but also the truth of that statement. And I think because you play in this fascinating liminal space between the virtual, the technological, 
and the natural and the organic. I think something fascinating is going on there. And of course, Night in the Garden of Love is not the first project that you've done that occupies into this space. I'm thinking about the VR piece that I think was called the Terrarium, wasn't it? That you imagined a kind of a virtual world. And even viewing it through my computer screen and trying to understand it, there was a really interesting tension between nature and technology and technology and fantasy and fantasy and nature. And those are all playing. It feels like you're playing with all of those things. And yet, to bring it back to what you just said, you're kind of asking us to go elsewhere with it. I mean, because there is a tension there, isn't there? I think it's trying to sort of draw attention to maybe the sort of larger tensions that are part of the human condition. Because, I mean, for me, like just to choose one as a sort of example that's maybe helpful for listeners, where does science and science fiction elide? And people go, oh, well, one's way over here and one's over here. But I can just sort of go, what about Asimov's laws of robotics? I'm sorry, but our imaginary is the source of discovery. You know, I love reading Hawking and Penrose on black holes because it reads to me like poetry. It's like Vedic poetry of the beginning and the end. It's like a hymn. Nothing is ever just what it appears to be. If we see with our eyes open and clear, everything gives onto a vista of the next field. And particularly this thing between nature, nature and fantasy, I think we need to understand that a painting, why is it some paintings have historical longevity? It's not because they fulfill a archival function, i.e., they are a marker of what that landscape looked like in 1820. It's because they show us what that landscape may look like in a transformational vector. And it's also why when I work with VR and other digital media, I find it sort of rather funny because you have a lot of people working in those technologies trying to recreate the real. And I'm like, no, somebody already did that. And much better, I can just go out into the park by my house and narrow my focus to a, a patch of grass this big. And there is life and there is geometry and there is color and tone and beauty. And the whole universe is in that microcosm. So why would I try and reproduce that? But what can I do that perhaps describes something about the inner life? What can I do that bridges that gap between the inner life and the outer life about transformation, about potential? You know, with the terrarium, it was to imagine, and it was quite beautiful because I got to work with these amazing scientists from evolutionary geneticists to marine biologists to paleoclimatologists to think about the Baltic Sea in 300 years. So there is a degree of science fact that went into that piece, but it also goes into space opera. And for me, it's like, what is that curve? Where does it accelerate from fact into fiction? And is that transition as clear as we might like to believe? Shazad, I wonder if you could tell me about a joy or a meanness that recently came to you as an unexpected visitor. Well... My father is um, very seriously ill at the moment, and that's been taking up a lot of 
my thought, my attention, and my energy. And he's basically going to have to go through um, a number of months of physiotherapy to learn how to speak again. Before he went into the hospital, we had lunch just on Sunday, and he was overjoyed because he'd found an app that he trained with 150 phrases to speak in his voice so that he would still be able to talk to his grandchildren. But that's not the end of it because he then shared with me that he'd managed to also teach it to swear in Urdu. <laughs> love it. I love it. And I didn't anticipate that it's such a, a difficult moment for both of us. We would suddenly be cackling with laughter. It was such a joyous moment and you know it's been a very interesting time because i've been so focused on that in a way i'm also kind of heartbroken by what's happening in the world but it's the personal to the larger picture it's sometimes we struggle to hold multiple things and then somehow the very fact that my old dad had hacked the ai to swear in his voice in urdu was hilarious and i hadn't i hadn't laughed that much in a while Shazad Daoud, this has been an honor and a privilege. This conversation has been so heartening at a time of heartbreak, and I owe you a great debt and a thanks for that. No, thank you. It's been such a pleasure talking to you, Abdul Rahman. Thank you for listening to This Being Human. Shazad's work, Night in the Garden of Love, is currently on display at the Aga Khan Museum in Toronto, where it will remain until May 2024. We'll include links in the show notes to see samples of this project and others. This Being Human is produced by Antica Productions in partnership with TVO. Our senior producer is Kevin Sexton. Our associate producer is Emily Morantz. Our executive producer is Laura Regeer. Stuart Cox is the president of Antica Productions. Mixing and sound design by Phil Wilson. Original music by Boombox Sound. Shagoyeg Tajvidi is TBO's managing editor of digital video and podcasts. Laurie Few is the executive for digital at TBO. This Being Human is generously supported by the Aga Khan Museum. Through the arts, the Aga Khan Museum sparks wonder, curiosity, and understanding of Muslim cultures and their connection with other cultures. For more information about the museum, go to www.agakhanmuseum.org. The museum wishes to thank the Hillary and Galen Weston Foundation for their generous support of This Being Human.